and welcome everybody to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And a, a very special edition of Novak Now for you this week because, as many of you know, I spent the previous week down uh, in Cape Canaveral, Florida, covering the launch of the Bereshit, or Genesis, lunar module from SpaceIL, the Israeli lunar module atop a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. It was an incredible experience that I'm going to get uh, give more details about here. And uh, I, I, I have to say it was just, again, if you have a chance to go to a launch, even if it isn't a launch that has anything to do with Israel, go to a launch. Uh, it's exciting. It, it, it ends quickly. But, of course, luckily you're in a very uh, fun part of, of Florida. Uh, Cocoa Beach is really close to Orlando and all the things you can do there. And there are going to be more launches in the coming months than we've seen in previous years, thanks to the activity that SpaceX and NASA are doing together. So uh, I wanted to make that little pitch there because it's, it's, a, it's a bucket list kind of thing to do. It's an amazing experience. And it doesn't really cost that much. I mean, I, you know, airfare tickets cost, or, or if you're driving down there, I understand there's a cost there and there's a hotel cost involved. But the admission to go to a very good viewing area for any, any launch is like 20 bucks. So, you know, <laughs> not bad. At least that's not one of your major expenses. Uh, and 20 bucks per vehicle, not per person. So, you know, you can load up, load up the vehicle with your family and friends and, and watch a launch. Um, but that's going to be the main uh, topic of, of this week's Novak Now. But I want to talk about a couple of other things before and after I get into the launch. And uh, these are things that you see me writing and discussing and, and hopefully having conversations about. Everyone is free to, to comment, it, hopefully respectfully, uh, on my Twitter page, at JakeJakeNY. That's my Twitter, at JakeJakeNY. That's the most active part of my social media uh, arsenal. Uh, I also have a couple of Facebook pages. Just look for Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K, and you'll find me. Um, so before I talk about the launch, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about Israeli politics because there's been some interesting developments and in what looked like it was not going to be the most exciting election in Israel uh, now seems like it might get a little bit more exciting because there is now an attempt, uh, and apparently they're making some progress, to join all the anti-Netanyahu parties together into one party, into one group that will attract all the voters who don't want Netanyahu. Um, it's a little bit dicey. That's a needle that has to be thread because very often some of these intramural rivalries among the left and the right are stronger than overall um, loyalties. So just because two people in Israel, two voters in Israel, might not like Bibi Netanyahu and, and not want him to be prime minister anymore doesn't mean they'll vote for each other's party to get that done. But uh, with Benny Gantz's new party, the Israeli Resistance Party, and with Yair Lapid uh, joining together, and some rumblings from Meretz and from Labor and from some of these other groups that they might all join in, uh, we could have a real challenge in Netanyahu. I guess the initial polls right now show, not the initial polls, the latest polls show Benny Gantz uh, with some kind of a lead over Netanyahu, although I, I think that will fade, and I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but clearly, uh, you know, we, we could have a little bit of a cliffhanger election, uh, more than we thought. Uh, I, the, the only cliffhanger going into last week for the Israeli elections that most people thought was, well, Netanyahu will still be prime minister, but let's see how the other parties work out. Let's see who the number one opposition is going to be. Let's see if Benny Gantz is able to get any traction, the whole thing. And now there, there seems like there may be more of a challenge to another few years of uh, Netanyahu as prime minister, as it is. Netanyahu is the longest-serving Israeli prime minister now. He is on more than 10 years of this current 
run as, as, as prime minister. And of course, he had the three years from 1995 to 1998. It's, it's incredible that there's someone who's been prime minister of Israel longer than the first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, who had a couple of stints as prime minister himself and was basically the, the founder of the modern state of Israel from a political standpoint. But he has. I mean, it's, I has been around for, for, a ten year, for 10 years in, in a row as the prime minister of a fractious political country like Israel is really amazing. And if Netanyahu is somehow defeated in this election, you're going to see a ton of headlines about how this is a stunning defeat and a horrific humiliation and all that kind of stuff. I, again, I don't know if that's going to happen. I, I, I still think that Netanyahu holds on. But if he does lose after 10 straight years in Israel, it's, nothing, it's anything but a horrific or you know, terrible humiliation. I mean, it's, it's amazing every single day that he continues to be prime minister is still an amazing stretch for a country that has shifted very, very strongly with the political winds over the years. And just a, one example of that is that the party that really dominated Israeli politics, not just politics, but everything about Israel, really, almost to, almost to every single category, including some religious stuff, even though they were a secular party, the Labor Party, which really you know, founded the State of Israel, created a whole structure of hierarchy, created monopolies within business and within uh, even the military. I mean, the nepotism and other things that were involved with the Labor Party for so many years, this dominant, dominant force in Israeli politics is just not even on the radar anymore. And to me, that just tells you, again, how much this country shifts from one side to the other or from one party to another very quickly. It's very, again, very fractious. The parliamentary system in this tiny country uh, has, you know, tons of parties, tons more parties than we have in this much larger country, the United States. So, again, just something to watch. Just something to watch over the next few days. Uh, I think that Benny Gantz gets a little bit of a goose in the polls every time there's some kind of new revelation that goes on. You know, he, he joins with Lapid now, so he's getting another goosing in the polls. When he first got, officially became a candidate, he got a little bit of a goosing in the polls, and then it, and then it dies off. So I have a feeling that maybe in another week or so his numbers will go back down. But uh, again, I, I, I think that this is a much more of a cliffhanger election for Netanyahu than we thought it would be even a week ago. And that makes this election a lot more interesting. And, but again, just watch out for the hyperbole from the news media and the so-called pundits. Because again, a, a person who's been prime minister for 10 straight years in Israel and 13 overall... Uh, there's no humiliation in losing a close election at that point. I mean, it's, it's amazing he's been in office that long in a country like Israel. So I think that point's made, and I just want people to, to think about that. So sticking with Israel, I want to talk now about this launch because this was an amazing experience. As some of you know, uh, I am also now working as a political economic analyst and also a producer for I-24 News. If you have Cablevision, Altice, or Optimum, whatever you call it, uh, then you have you have I twenty four news, uh, and uh, I can't tell you the number because it depends on where you're living. But look for I twenty four news, and this is an, a news uh, network that has about uh, ten hours to eleven hours of live programming every day. About half of it is from Israel. Their headquarters in Israel at the Jaffa Port, right there at the at the uh, c- cornerstone of of Tel Aviv and, and Jaffa, right where they sort of meet. Those many of you have visited the Jaffa port. It hasn't been the biggest tourist attraction that they were hoping it would be, but it's not exactly abandoned either. It's really a nice place to to eat lunch and read a newspaper and do stuff like that. Um, And so about half of it comes from Israel, and these are all in English. This is an English program in Israel. In fact, I-24 News does not have a license to broadcast in Hebrew in Israel. So this is for the English-speaking public in Israel or the English-understanding public in Israel. And the rest of it comes from New York. And I, uh, Altice also owns 
France 24 News, which is a French-language station, which has a lot of reporting in Israel as well. And this is all owned by Patrick Drahi, who is a Moroccan-born, uh, sometimes Israeli resident, Jewish man, who owns the Altice Corporation, and uh, it's kind of his baby, and a man named Frank Malul, who runs all the I-24, the 24 networks, both France 24 and I-24. Um, so I've been working for them, and uh, we were covering this launch. Now, this is the launch that was privately funded. This was not a, an Israeli government project, although the Israeli aerospace industries, IAI, participated in the designing of the lunar module. But this was mostly done by Space IL, which is Israel's private space uh, it's not for profit, but it's a private company, space exploration company, and it was privately funded. This cost $100 million, which I know sounds like a lot of money in some context, but in this context, it's not a lot of money for a lunar mission to cost less than a billion dollars, let alone less than $200 million is a big deal, and I'll explain why that was in a second. Um, but about $2 million of that $100 million came from the Israeli government one way or the other. The other $98 million came from private donations to people who believed in this project for many different reasons. The biggest single donor was a man named Morris Khan, a South African-born Israeli billionaire. Uh, who uh, donated $40 million. And Sheldon Adelson gave a ton of money as well. Uh, I met another one of the larger donors, a man named Sylvan Thomas, who is a Canadian-born, just made Aliyah Israeli now. Um, so uh, he was a very interesting uh, uh, person to meet as well. And so this launch took place Thursday night. I hope you watched it either on I-24 or maybe on the SpaceX feed because it was very exciting. And uh, here's the story behind it. It is a small lunar module that they named Bereshit, Genesis, because it is the first of what they hope will be many uh, lunar modules or Israeli spacecraft, Israeli-designed and made spacecraft. And it was affixed on top of a SpaceX, which, again, is another private company run by Elon Musk, SpaceX, as a lot of you know about it. Uh, they have these Falcon 9 rocket, which is a reusable rocket. Uh, it, it, it rockets, satellites, and other objects into space and comes back down and... If everything goes as planned, it's able to be retrieved at sea. And by the way, uh, spoiler alert, they were able to do that this time as well. Even though it was a night launch, and they were very worried about not retrieving the rocket this time, and it would have been, okay, we got three launches out of it, and that wouldn't have been too bad. But now they'll get another one because they retrieved it successfully. And on top of the Falcon 9 were three payloads. On The, the top payload was the beret sheet, the lunar module. The middle uh, payload was the... It was an Indonesian telecom satellite, which paid for most of this launch... This is a private company in, in, in the Indonesian, well, state-run, sorry, state-run telecom uh, company. And then on the bottom was an Air Force military uh, payload of, that we didn't know a lot of information about because it's a military payload and they don't want us to know a lot about it. Um, so Israel was able to cut down most of the cost because they uber-pooled, they carpooled, whatever you want to call it, uh, this launch. Uh, had they been the only occupant uh, on top of the Falcon 9, they would have had to have paid a lot more money. Uh, and so that was one way that they cut down the cost. And the other way they cut down the cost is it's a very small module. It's about as big as a zip car. If you've ever seen those zip cars that are like two-seater, sometimes even one-seater cars, uh, cars I would never actually want to drive except for when I'm trying to parallel park in Manhattan, then I really wish I had a zip car. Otherwise, I don't want to be on the road with one of those <laughs> because I don't feel like it's safe. Um, but uh, that's how big it is, and most of the weight of it is fuel. Uh, and, you know, a couple of other science and technology aspects of this, which are not too hard to understand. How is it getting all the way to the moon? Uh, it is now in Earth's orbit. It's going to do six full orbits of the Earth, build up 
and momentum from the gravitational pull of the Earth on every orbit until it has enough power to slingshot itself to, towards the moon, get to the moon using rocket thrusters as a little help and course correction here and there, and then when it gets close enough to the moon, the plan is for the moon's gravitational pull to pull it in, and after an Omer, which I thought was very, uh, uh, very interesting, after seven weeks exactly, 49 days, the plan is for it to land softly on the moon on April 11th. So again, the launch went right off in time. Now, this was funny. We, uh, my crew got to um, Orlando, the area Orlando, and Cocoa Beach on Wednesday. I mean, the, the launch was Thursday night. We got there on Wednesday, and we rushed to get to the official news conference, the Space IL news conference at the Orlando Marriott Resort, this huge complex. We just barely got there in time and got a very good report out of that. Then the next morning, we were reporting from the Cocoa Beach area where we had a good shot of the NASA headquarters across the, the water. And then Thursday, we went and got two special things. First was something that was very, very um, exclusive. Only about 30, maybe less, journalists got to go to the actual launch pad. You know, when you go see a launch, you don't see it from the launch pad because you would be incinerated. <laughs> You've got to be a little bit further away. But before the launch, of course, you can go if you, if you have the special pass and you have the clearance, which we got. And we went right up to the launch pad, and it was launch pad 40, and as soon as I heard that, I was in, you know, I was really on cloud nine because I know that the launch pads 38 and 39, right next to the launch pad 40, are where all those Apollo missions, the ones that went to the moon, um, took off from, lifted off from. And it was just a great feeling to, to feel like, you know, here the United States hasn't landed anything, human or, or machine, on the moon in more than 40 years. Here is Israel trying to do this now for the United States for the first time in more than 40 years. And we're passing the baton over to Israel. So it's 38, 39 to Launchpad 40, which I really thought was great. But getting right on the Launchpad was very cool. And I took some videos. Again, if you have my Twitter feed, at JakeJakeNY, or my Facebook page, at Jake Novak Facebook page, you scroll down and look towards Thursday, you'll be able to find the videos where I have a little bit of commentary about the rocket, and you'll see the video of the rocket from the launch pad, uh, which you probably won't, you know, didn't really see anywhere else. So that was, that, that was a lot of fun. And then they took us a little bit later in the day to the viewing site where everyone backs in their cars right up to the water there. Uh, they ask you to back up because they don't want any headlights uh, ruining anyone's camera shot of the launch. And there were no other television networks covering that launch live. I mean, there were a couple of like local television networks who were covering it, and I think they were just doing it on tape. We were doing it live for I-24 News, and we were right there. And then a crazy thing happened. They told us, listen, you know, we knew this before, that the launch window was from 8.45 until about 9.17. And they said, after 9.17, if we aren't able to get this launch uh, to go, then we'll have to wait for tomorrow. And we thought, like, you know, listen, there's so many different factors here. What could happen? And then at 8.44.50, they start the 10-second countdown, and we're like, oh, my God, this is going off on time. And the joke we were all making is that here you have an Israeli Jewish uh, project uh, going off right on time. Clearly, clearly, this is a giant leap for the Jewish people <laughs> that were doing something on time like this. And it lifted off, and it just went perfectly. And when that rocket is going over your head like that, and you feel the heat from the exhaust, and you feeling that rumble from the rocket. It's, 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 a, it's an amazing feeling. It's an amazing experience. Again, I suggest everyone go to a launch. If you can do it, do it before you, know, you run out of time for it. And do it while they're doing these very frequent launches. I believe now the next launch that SpaceX is going to do is early March. It might even be March 1st. I'm not sure. So w whenever it is, check it out because that might be your next chance. If you happen to be in Florida anyway, you, know, you might as well just do it. it it's, it's a really amazing experience. Um, this is an important project. So I want to talk a little bit about the project, more than just the ooh-ah factor and the wow factor of, of, of the launch and all of that. 
Uh, I found out some things that were really interesting that I didn't know before, and I think a lot of people don't understand if they know about Israel. You know, we've been told for years now, and it's true, Israel is a startup nation, this technological, pharmaceutical, biotech wonder, and it is defense tech, all that kind of stuff. They're great at all these things. We know that. But what we may not know is that among the leaders of the tech industry and the leaders of the academic in, you know, world in Israel and the economic world in Israel, there has been a growing fear over the last few years that the younger generation now, the teenagers and, and the younger children in Israel, are not as interested in technology, biotech, pharma, they all kind of stuff like their, like their parents or maybe their older brothers are or sisters are. And there's a fear of that. And, you know, it's not completely unfounded. If you know how economic cycles work and how things go in any country of any size, uh, these things can have an ebb and flow. And the Israeli, you know, leadership in Israel, both political and non-political, is worried that this younger generation won't be as turned on by science. And remember, a huge reason why Israel is so advanced technologically is because they had that big influx of Russian immigrants who came in the late 1980s, early 90s, who had had... Terrible hardships in Russia, all kinds of issues in the former Soviet Union, but one thing they came with that was, a lot of them came with, that was really valuable is they actually did have a good engineering education in their back pockets when they got to Israel. You know, not that Israel's education system was totally terrible. Uh, it has a lot of flaws from K through 12 and through university. There's, there, you know, there are issues with it. But it's not, as, it's not that it's terrible. It's just some of these Russian people who came with a better education and with more practical knowledge of engineering and of aerospace and, of all that, and, and just technology in general really helped Israel become the startup nation. It's a big factor. It's a big factor. And I don't know if everyone has, ever, has talked about it before, if other people have talked about it in the past. That, you know, they're, they're absolutely correct. And I don't think it's the biggest reason, but it's important. And now there's a fear that this younger generation that doesn't come from Russia or doesn't have that in their, uh, in their DNA – uh, is not going to be as interested in it. So this, was, this, this mission is actually crucial to Israel. They are hoping for a similar effect in Israel as the Apollo effect here in the United States. Now, for those of you who are old enough to remember, and I'm barely old enough to remember because I was actually born after the first moon launch. I'm born in 1970. And for those of you, you, know, you remember that, of course, it was July 20th, 1969 that we landed on the moon in, in on Apollo 11. But I was still born during the Apollo era. And people who were born or young around that time, you know, I guess anyone born between 1960 and maybe 1974 at least had some experience with that and felt that excitement in one way or the other. And it absolutely inspired some of the great tech giants that we see in the U.S. today, even if they aren't American, even if they weren't born American, like in Elon Musk, who, of course, started SpaceX. But some of the other tech giants, the Steve Jobs, who was about, who was probably an older teenager, I guess, in 1969, may have been about 20 years old or close to that, but he was an older teenager. Certainly during the Apollo missions that led up to Apollo 11, he was, he was a teenager and a young man. And the Jeff Bezos especially was very inspired by the Apollo effect, and he, of course, has started a private aerospace company of his own. He's trying to compete with SpaceX in a few years. Uh, the Bill Gateses of the world. I mean, there's a lot of people in the, in the U.S. right now who are tech giants who were inspired by the Apollo missions. And so they are hoping for that in Israel as well with this Bereshit, with the Space IL program. So, again, you know, I just, I can't, it, but when that, when that rocket launched off, and you know, of course, I'm immediately saying in my mind to feel out of Derek, I'm saying Shemaya to I'm thinking about all this kind of stuff in my mind, saying Shekhianu. It's an amazing, exp- uh, 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 you know, achievement in so many ways, but 
there's there's a there's a bigger reason here than just some of the scientific data that they're going to get from this, and just for the fact of of doing it. Um, when they land on the moon, they're going to spend about two days before the module really kind of runs out of power. Uh, where they will hopefully measure the magnetic fields on the moon, which are unlike the, unlike the Earth, there is no central magnetic field. So they're trying to figure out how the moon was formed. And then, by the way, I, again, another thing I didn't know, we, I, did, I did know that we did not know how exactly the moon was formed. But we also, but I didn't know that there's like a new theory that comes out every few years. So there's just a lot of debate about how the moon was formed, and they're hoping that the Beret Sheet Module will help with that. And the other great thing to know is that the NASA administ- administrator, Jim Bradenstein, used to be a congressman, saw the lunar module, saw the Beret sheet for the first time six months ago. And as soon as he saw it, he was so impressed. He said, listen, we've got to get some NASA apparatus on this. And they put on a laser reflector array on top of Beret sheet, which will be used to GPS map the moon, to map some of the potential paths from Earth to, to Mars, if there's ever going to be another Mars mission. It could be kind of like a traffic light or a guide, you know, one of those, one of those arrows that will show, uh, show the spacecraft where to go, something along those lines. So that's another great achievement because Israel does want to work with NASA more and always likes working, you know, with the United States in an equal partnership type way, which this really was. So just a great experience. And, you know, we'll be crossing our fingers and just praying for the lunar module to to make this journey it's it's got this seven week journey and it's only a few days into it so far the reports from space il is that it's on track and so far so good so we'll keep updated with like that and you can follow space il and this journey also on twitter at space il at space il is how you can follow it it comes up as israel to the moon so it's easy easy to figure out and i think they're going to be doing hopefully daily updates i saw one today so I'm, I'm hoping that they'll that that's a great way to follow it in case you're un, unable to do so otherwise. Um, wanted to get to two more topics here on this edition of Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I wanted to talk a little bit more. There's a little bit of an update, and I think um, it's a small thing as far as its length and maybe even who it's coming from. But it's a very very big deal in this Amazon uh, decision, as you know, to pull out of their previous agreement to come to New York City, specifically Long Island City, with a second headquarters, or at least half of their second headquarters, 25,000 jobs promised. Um, and we all know, hopefully by now, that that offer has been rescinded. Amazon cited political opposition to the move and, and not wanting to have to deal with that headache. And um, there were people who were cheering it, including the newly elected Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who represents an area near where that headquarters would have been, uh, and a bunch of local politicians and activists. Uh, there is a very, very informative open letter to Governor Cuomo, which is, of course, a really open letter to everyone, by Robert Mujica, who is the budget director. He's the budget director for the state of New York. And this is an important person. He understands the, you know, the, the numbers uh, for the state. And he writes a scathing letter to Governor Cuomo explaining the real reason why this went down, what the real problems were. And I guess he was following it a lot closer than, than a lot of people know. But one of the things he said very early on in this letter absolutely is exactly what I said the day the report came out that Amazon was even thinking about pulling out of the deal. And I said this on the air on I-24 News because in addition to being a producer there, I'm a, the political and economic analyst on I-24. And I told the anchorwoman, Michelle McCory, who, who, who I work with, that this is, looks a heck of a lot like another one of those shakedown deals. And for those of you who have lived in New York long enough, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When new projects come to the city or they are proposed, there's always somebody with a handout who wants to get a little bit more for himself or herself before they approve the deal. 
and they find or they they find a way to get inside that that line of production or that line of approval so that they can block it so they can ask for something. And most of the time, a lot of companies try to give in, and Amazon just isn't in the giving in mode right now. So. You have people like Ocasio-Cortez who really had nothing riding on this deal other than to make a name for herself on Twitter, and she opposed it from the beginning. You had people like uh, some of these state senators who were getting involved. And what Robert Mojica talks about is that like, these groups, along with some union leaders, really didn't want to nix the deal. Again, this is exactly what I said on the air uh, to Michelle McCory. They didn't really want to nix the deal. They just wanted a better deal for themselves. So there were some union leaders who knew that Amazon's construction of all these buildings would give them 11,000 union construction jobs, which are the really good jobs. So they knew that was happening. They thought, like, well, let's ask them for something else. Let's see if we can shake them down for more. And, of course, they wanted to shake them down for union jobs at Whole Foods, which Amazon happens to own. But it had nothing to do with this deal. It's another business that they own somewhere else. Okay. And that was one of the things they were pushing, and it, it blew the deal. It blew the deal for, forget about Amazon, it blew the deal for union workers. You know, I know unions are all about solidarity, but they don't seem to have a lot of smarts. You know? <laughs> and if, this were, if these were Republican politicians who had done this, who, who had screwed this deal for New York, uh, the, I mean, the unions, anyway, Republican or not, they should be camped out at Alexander Ocasio-Cortez's office permanently. They should be camped out at some of these state senators' offices permanently. They screwed a good deal for them. They screwed some good jobs for them. And so I, I urge you, again, I have tweeted it myself, but you can look up Robert Mojica. His, it's, his last name is pronounced M-U-J-I-C-A, open letter. And you can find what he wrote. It's not hard to read. It's not very long. And he really goes into the whole story, the real story of why Amazon pulled out and why they were pushed out. And yes, it, sound, it makes things a little bit more sympathetic for Governor Andrew Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio, but to that I say, look, a strong governor and a strong mayor in a state that wasn't a one-party state would have been much more proactive and strong about stopping these troublemakers from nixing a deal like this. And Governor Andrew Cuomo is not a strong governor. He's got a, you know, he's got a temper and he's got a mean look on his face, but that doesn't make him strong. He's not. Mayor de Blasio has a lot of strong opinions, but he's not a strong mayor. And I think that this part and parcel, not so much of their personalities, but it's part and parcel of the fact that the New York City and New York State are one-party entities. And when you're in a one-party state, it's a lot more important to to, to, to talk the talk, at, talk and not walk the walk, because you're not going to get unelected. As long as you have control over your party, you'll, you'll, you'll keep your job. But these guys are just not strong enough, and they don't have the impetus to be strong enough. They don't have the accountability that they need to have, because they're in a one-party state, one-party city, and they're going to fumble these things, too. So I, I put a lot of responsibility on them for not doing a good enough job of tamping down these troublemakers. You know, that's what we hire these guys for. We elect them to stop the troublemakers from ruining the city and ruining the state. And they failed. So I'm not giving them a pass, but it does tell you who started this, and it was these political lower-level activists and troublemakers who were just looking for a shakedown. They were not really against the deal, which just shows how dishonest and cynical these people are. Um, It's really, really frustrating. One final note, because we're just about to wrap up here on this edition of Novak Now with Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I want to talk again. I've decided now I'm going to do a running file of a malpractice-type file for the news media. As a news media professional, I am not an apologist for the news media. I'm trying to make it better. And so I point out times when we, I think, commit malpractice and act like an enemy of the people. And there was yet another example this week. A guy named Will Sommer, S-O-M-M-E-R, decided to write for, he works for the Daily Beast, and he decided to write something about 
the pastry chef, I kid you not, this sounds like a joke, a pastry chef at Mar-a-Lago, this woman, who has tweeted some crazy conspiracy theories. Nothing violent. She's not saying anyone should go kill anybody. Just some crazy conspiracy theories. She believes in this, that, and the other thing. But he names the woman. He talks about where she works. He gave us a lot of her personal information, you know, to harass the woman and to make fun of her. And you might remember there was another woman who, like, retweeted a Russian post or something about a year ago who was a Trump supporter, and the mainstream news media did the same thing to her. Again, another example of where the news media is acting like the enemy of the people, endangering this woman, just like they did to the Covington 16-year-old, and, and on and on down the line. And so look for that story and understand, again, what I want people to do when they hear me say this is to please understand that a lot of the product that you are looking at when you're watching the news media, reading the news media, is not only incorrect, it's dangerous. It's harmful to people. Understand that and choose wisely. Hopefully you'll find something that isn't harmful, that isn't acting like an enemy of the people. And there are just so many examples. I, I, I'd like to, to try to call them out when I see them because, you know what? We need to do better. We need to do better in this industry. And as consumers, you need to do better. Make sure that you're choosing better stuff. This is Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'll speak to you again next week.